This week, new antithrombotic therapy guidelines from the American College of Chest Physicians, and can diabetes be cured? Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm your host, Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today, it's just me and you. We're talking about two topics today. The first is the new, I mean, relatively new, February of 2016 uh, anti-thrombotic therapy guidelines. This is the 10th edition of the anticoagulation guidelines published by the American College of Chest Physicians. So we will go over that. And then, full disclosure here, I am stealing content from my wife, who is a resident in endocrinology. Uh, She recently gave a journal club presentation about whether or not diabetes can be cured through very low calorie diets. And I thought it was really fascinating. So we're going to talk a little bit about that topic. So let's dive right in. And You may note that uh, despite my best efforts, I could not convince her to do the podcast with me, which is why we're doing this, just me and you, dear listener. All right, so let's dive right in. So first, we're going to start with the new anti-thrombotic therapy guidelines from February of 2016. So this is uh, the 10th edition of these guidelines, as I mentioned. Uh, There's a number of minor revisions and updates uh, in terms of reviewing the latest literature in anti-thrombotic therapy. Uh, But I want to talk about five topics that I think are notable points from the new guidelines and uh, review some of their points. So the first point that they make is probably the single biggest and most significant recommendation in these guidelines, which is that for patients with DVT or PE, so clots in the legs or in the lungs, warfarin is no longer first-line therapy. Their recommendation is that the direct oral anticoagulants, so rivaroxaban, edoxaban, apixaban, and dibigatran, are recommended first line above warfarin. The rationale for this is because the risk reduction with vitamin K antagonists like warfarin appears to be similar with the direct oral anticoagulants. But the risk of bleeding, especially intracranial bleeding, is lower with the direct oral anticoagulants. The guidelines now recommend that based on less bleeding and more convenience and similar effectiveness, the direct oral anticoagulants should be used first line ahead of warfarin for managing patients with DVT or PE. So that's a pretty big sea change that we have, to be honest, seen coming over the last five to seven years. Uh, And now we're finally there. So that's the first uh, big recommendation. The subcategory of patients are the group of patients. So this is in patients who do not have cancer and who have a blood clot. In patients who do have cancer, uh, but who do have a blood clot, the recommendation is still in favor of low molecular weight heparin. And there is not yet evidence to suggest that you can use direct oral anticoagulants either ahead of low molecular weight heparin or even that those are better than uh, vitamin K antagonists. So right now the recommendation is, as it has been for some time, that patients with cancer and a clot should be treated with low molecular weight heparin. Okay, so that's point number one. Warfarin is uh, fallen out of favor as first-line recommendations. The second recommendation I want to talk about is a little bit more uh, controversial, 
and it's about the use of aspirin. So the new guidelines now recommend that in patients who have an unprovoked DVT or PE and who have chosen to stop anticoagulation. So just to review, patients who have unprovoked DVTs or PEs, meaning there wasn't an obvious triggering event, the choices of therapy are either three months of anticoagulation or extended anticoagulation. And if people have an otherwise not elevated bleeding risk, we typically recommend extended anticoagulation with no no obvious stop date, so basically prolonged or lifelong as, as long as possible anticoagulation to prevent recurrence in those patients. But some patients may choose for you know a variety of reasons uh, not to continue their anticoagulation for uh, patient preference, inconvenience, maybe slightly elevated bleeding risk, maybe very low recurrence risk. In those patients who have decided to stop anticoagulation, the guidelines recommend starting aspirin to prevent recurrent venous thromboembolism. And this is based on evidence from two randomized trials that encompassed about 1,200 patients in which aspirin was compared to placebo for prevention of recurrent venous thromboembolism in patients who had one unprovoked DVT and PE and who completed somewhere between 3 and 18 months of anticoagulation. What they found was uh, moderate quality evidence that aspirin reduces recurrent venous thromboembolism by about one-third. So there's a relative reduction of about uh, 33%, and that amounts to an absolute risk reduction of 60 cases per 1,000. So an absolute risk reduction of about 6%. It'll be interesting to see how this is viewed in the... uh, community of uh, physicians who treat thrombosis because the role of aspirin in preventing clots is quite controversial, mostly because the bleeding risk with aspirin, some believe, may not be that much lower than the bleeding risk with some of the new oral anticoagulants, specifically apixaban. And so it'll be interesting to see whether this recommendation does persist beyond, uh, you know, the next round of revisions and the next round of latest evidence that's incorporated into the guidelines. And it'll be interesting to see how much this is applied. I'll be honest, I find this not that persuasive. Okay, recommendation number three. And actually, the next two recommendations that I want to talk to you about are about tricky clot locations. So recommendation number three is about distal DVTs. So we know that if a DVT is proximal to the knee, uh, it should be anticoagulated. But when we talk about calf DVTs or distal DVTs in the legs, it's not really clear what should be done with those clots. About 15% of untreated distal DVTs are expected to go on to extend into the popliteal veins or cause PE. So not an insignificant amount. And so what these guidelines suggest is that you have to either treat with anticoagulation as you would for a proximal DVT, or monitor the clot with serial ultrasounds for at least two weeks to see whether the clot extends. And if the clot extends, then you should anticoagulate. If the clot doesn't extend, you might be able to get away with not anticoagulating. So here's the recommendation. If people have a distal DVT, the first question is, do they have symptoms? If they are severely symptomatic, you may consider anticoagulation anyway. 
The second question is, do they have risk factors for extension? So the risk factors for extension of a distal DVT are the following. First, do they have a positive D-dimer? Second, is the thrombosis extensive? Meaning, is it, does it involve multiple veins in the calf? Is it more than five centimeters in length? The third risk factor for extension is whether it's very close to the proximal veins. So it's distal, but it's not that distal. Next, if it's unprovoked, the fifth risk factor is whether there is cancer underlying uh, the clot. The sixth risk factor is whether the patient has a history of venous thromboembolism in the past. And finally, if the patient is an inpatient, then there's a higher risk of extension. So any of those risk factors for extension might push you towards anticoagulating rather than simply observing or taking a serial ultrasound approach. If patients do not have symptoms and do not have risk factors for extension, then you could consider serial imaging, and they recommend serial imaging for two weeks, so repeat ultrasounds at least more than 72 hours after the first ultrasound, and you'd want to check it uh, for up to two weeks' time. And they suggest that if the clot extends during that time, the patient should be anticoagulated. And once you've made the decision to anticoagulate the patient, anticoagulate them as if it were a proximal DVT. Okay, so that's the tricky population of distal DVTs. The next tricky clot population is subsegmental PEs. So this is recommendation number four that I wanted to talk about, which is what do you do with these subsegmental pulmonary emboli? So if people have a clot in the distal blood vessels of the lungs, what should we do? So the most important thing to know about this category of disease is that there's very poor quality evidence. A number of small retrospective studies have shown that subsegmental pulmonary emboli have a low risk of recurrence or of subsequent thrombosis. And so we think that they can probably be ignored if they're clinically asymptomatic, but we don't have strong evidence. Here's what the recommendation is. The recommendation from the American College of Chest Physicians is if someone has a subsegmental PE, they should have imaging of both of their legs to make sure that they don't have a DVT. Assuming that the CT scan of their chest and the ultrasound Doppler of their legs shows no proximal PE and no proximal DVT, then you should think about their risk for recurrent VTE, and they recommend using a number of different risk factors for recurrent or progressive VTE. First, whether patients are hospitalized. Second, whether they have active cancer. Third, whether they uh, had an unprovoked VTE. Those risk factors might push you towards anticoagulating the patient. If the patient doesn't have any of those risk factors, and if they have good cardiopulmonary reserve, so they're an otherwise fit person that could tolerate uh, a small extension of a pulmonary embolus, then it would be reasonable to move ahead with simple clinical surveillance, which means just monitoring the patient for signs and symptoms. The final category of thrombosis that I wanted to talk about based on these recommendations is that of recurrent venous thromboembolism. So if patients have a recurrent clot on therapy, you have to ask yourself three questions. The first is, is this really recurrence? Or is it simply the persistence of the previous clot or an old clot? So the first is, is it really recurrence? The second is, 
Is the patient really adherent to their therapy? And finally, is there an underlying risk factor that could be provoking the clot? Specifically, does the patient have an underlying malignancy? And the reason you have to ask yourself these three questions is because patients developing recurrent venous thromboembolism while on therapy is quite rare. And it is unusual, so requires a little bit of extra thought. Now, assuming that you have established that it is recurrent venous thromboembolism, the guideline recommends that if people were on a vitamin K antagonist or a direct oral anticoagulant and they were believed to be adherent, instead of continuing those therapies, the patient should be switched to low molecular weight heparin, at least temporarily. They don't suggest how long, uh, but they do recommend switching to low molecular weight heparin, at least temporarily. If patients have recurrent clots already on low molecular weight heparin, then they recommend increasing the dose of the low molecular weight heparin by somewhere between one quarter and one third. Okay, so to summarize, the five major recommendations that I want to highlight from the new chest guidelines, and there's other stuff in there that you know, you're welcome to read at your leisure. But the five things I wanted to highlight are first, warfarin is no longer first line for treatment of DVT or PE, and instead the direct oral anticoagulants are recommended. Second, the guidelines suggest that in patients who have an unprovoked DVT or PE, and that patient is going to stop their anticoagulation therapy, the patient should be considered to be started on aspirin for long-term prevention of recurrence. Third, if patients have a distal DVT, you should ask, does the patient have symptoms? Does the patient have risk factors for extension of the clot? If the answer is yes, then anticoagulate the patient. If the answer is no, you can perform serial imaging for two weeks. Any evidence of extension of the clot should lead to anticoagulation as if it was a proximal DVT. Fourth, about subsegmental PEs, you should image both the legs and you should estimate the patient's risk for recurrence of venous thromboembolism. If they have high recurrence on the basis of clinical features like being an inpatient, or if the patient has low cardiopulmonary reserve and you worry that they couldn't tolerate extension of their pulmonary emboli or subsequent pulmonary emboli, then they should be anticoagulated. And then the final recommendation I wanted to highlight was if patients have recurrent VTE on therapy, then you should do the following. If they were not on low molecular weight heparin, you should switch them to low molecular weight heparin, at least temporarily. And if they were on low molecular weight heparin, you should increase the dose by 25 to 33%. Okay, that's it for clots. I know we talk about clotting a lot on this show. Um, I'm not going to justify it. You keep listening, so it's your own fault. Okay, let's change gears. So topic number two, can diabetes be cured? So here's what we know about type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is a growing epidemic. About 23% of obese people have type 2 diabetes, and we know that rates of obesity are increasing. We also know that when people are diagnosed with diabetes, we typically counsel them on the fact that the disease is chronic, progressive, and incurable. We tell them that they're going to be on medical therapy, that they should introduce lifestyle interventions, as well as 
you know, various risk factor modification efforts, including both pharmacological and non-pharmacological approaches. And we treat diabetes with various approaches to try to control blood sugar through a stepwise approach with insulin as the de facto last resort. But there's increasingly been a shift in the paradigm of our understanding of diabetes. And the idea of curing diabetes uh, or whether diabetes is a reversible condition has been postulated and has gained some increasing traction in the literature. And this is because normal blood glucose status has been achieved after a few different types of interventions. Specifically, those, those interventions are predominantly geared around weight loss. So the most famous one is bariatric surgery. But other interventions include intensive lifestyle therapy or a sharp decrease in caloric intake. There are also a couple of other more experimental therapies, including intensive insulin therapy at the time of diagnosis and pancreas or islet cell transplant therapy. I'm going to focus a little bit more on the weight loss interventions because it's a little bit closer to uh, clinical practice at the moment. So I asked the provocative question, can diabetes be cured? If we're going to be scientific about it, we should probably be clear that really we're talking more about remission rather than cure. The distinction being that remission is restoring or achieving good health with the possibility that the disease could recur in the future. And that's probably more accurate when we're talking about diabetes rather than something like, uh, you know, fully curing the condition like one might with an early stage cancer. So the less sexy title of this segment probably should have been, can we induce remission in, in patients with diabetes? So I mentioned that there are a few different types of interventions that have been shown to actually induce remission in diabetes. So the first is intensive lifestyle therapy. The most famous study was the Look Ahead study. So this is a randomized control trial of about 4,500 patients who had varying duration of type 2 diabetes and who needed to have a BMI of greater than 25. The study compared an intensive lifestyle intervention as opposed to diabetes support and education. The patients were followed for four years. The primary outcome of the study was to look at whether or not the intensive lifestyle intervention could reduce cardiovascular events. Uh, and the study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2012, showed no benefit in terms of cardiovascular outcomes. Interestingly, though, a secondary analysis of the study did show that the intensive lifestyle intervention was able to induce diabetes remission in a subset of patients. So the lifestyle intervention was that patients had group and individual counseling, which was aimed to reduce their total caloric intake to between 1,200 and 1,800 calories per day. They also had other dietary modifications like reducing fat intake, and they had an increase in physical activity. So what was found was that there was more weight loss in the intensive lifestyle intervention group, 8.6% of weight lost as opposed to 0.7%. They also found that diabetes remission was greater in the intensive lifestyle group. So 11.5% of patients at one year achieved diabetes remission in the intensive group as opposed to 2% at one year, and then 7.3% at four years. So about 10% of patients achieved remission in their diabetes with this intensive lifestyle intervention. And for some of those patients, that persisted out to four years afterwards. They found that the people who were more likely to achieve remission had 
a shorter duration of diabetes and had greater weight loss and also had better baseline hemoglobin A1C. So that's intensive lifestyle intervention. You know, the look ahead study has widely been regarded as a negative study. It didn't show improvement in cardiovascular outcomes, but certainly there's some encouraging evidence from the intensive lifestyle intervention that for about 10% of people, they were able to achieve a remission in their diabetes. And just to be clear, by remission, we mean blood glucose levels returning to normal without requiring ongoing use of diabetes medications. Okay, the second and most famous, and I think people would agree most successful intervention for treating diabetes, and more specifically inducing remission of diabetes in patients who are obese, has been bariatric surgery. So observational studies have reported 60 to 90% rates of remission of type 2 diabetes following bariatric surgery. Now, there haven't been that many randomized control trials. There was a systematic review of bariatric surgery versus non-surgical treatment uh, for obesity. It was published in the BMJ in 2013. They included randomized control trials that had at least six months of follow-up, and that included individuals who had a BMI of greater than 30, And the the studies had to compare a bariatric surgery technique with non-surgical treatment. So they found with this systematic review and meta-analysis 11 studies with 796 patients whose BMI ranged between 30 and 52, so obese and, you know, extremely morbidly obese. What they found was that individuals who were allocated to bariatric surgery lost much more body weight. The mean difference was... 26 kilograms of additional weight lost in the bariatric surgery group as opposed to the non-surgery group. And they also found that the bariatric surgery group had a much higher rate of remission of type 2 diabetes. Depending on the assumptions that were used when they did their meta-analysis, the likelihood of achieving diabetes remission ranged from 5 times more likely to 22 times more likely at achieving diabetes remission. So certainly this has been one of the most widely regarded and important outcomes associated with bariatric surgery. Now the really fascinating question is why does bariatric surgery cause diabetes remission? The obvious answer is that the dramatic weight loss somehow restores the patient's metabolic parameters and they are able to achieve uh, normal blood sugar levels. But Actually, the evidence points to a little bit more complicated picture, and the main reason for this is that they noted really significant improvements in blood glucose levels within days of the surgery, much in advance of the patients achieving significant weight loss. So that suggests that there is some other mechanism going on, and the most widely recognized mechanisms at this point seem to be altered signaling pathways the incretin signaling pathways, so GLP-1 signaling, seems to be altered very shortly after surgery. The other theory is that patients are placed immediately on low-calorie diets and have significant dietary modifications right after the surgery, and so that may also play a role. And so that brings us to the third category of lifestyle-type interventions, to try to achieve remission in diabetes. And this is the very low calorie diet. So a healthy caloric intake 
for an average adult man is somewhere around 2,500 calories and for an average adult woman is somewhere around 2,000 calories, obviously with wide ranges depending upon level of physical activity, etc. These diets are extreme for the very low calorie diet to try to induce diabetes remission. And there's one group that has published a number of papers around a 500 calorie per day diet. So this is a diet in which they preserve the macronutrient intake in terms of the amount of carbohydrates to fat to protein. So 50% protein, 35% carbs, 15% fat. And it's put together as a predominantly liquid diet combined of low-fat milk, pureed fruit and vegetables, as well as a few low-calorie beverages, sugar-free chewing gum, some flavored bouillon that is sodium-free. So this like very restrictive diet. And patients are placed on this very low-calorie diet, 500 calories or 600 calories per day, for a finite period of time, a short period of time. So the patients are placed on this extremely low calorie diet for eight weeks. And then in one study, what they did was they had a slow return to normal calorie intake over two weeks. And then they were kept on a structured weight maintenance program for the next six months. And this was a prospective longitudinal single center study. So one center put patients on this very restrictive diet for a two months, and then slowly reintroduce them back to an isocaloric intake. And what they found was that they were able to enroll 30 patients with type 2 diabetes of varying durations who had elevated BMI between 27 and 45. And so they found that for all 30 patients, the weight decreased after the intervention quite dramatically. So from 98 kilograms at baseline down to 83 kilograms. So 15 kilograms of weight loss in the first two months. And that weight loss was basically sustained at six months. Of the 30 people in the group, 12 out of the 30 achieved diabetes remission. The remainder of patients did not achieve diabetes remission, but their average hemoglobin A1c did decrease from 8.4 at baseline to 7.8 at six months in the follow-up. Whereas in the responders, their baseline hemoglobin A1c was 7.1, and it decreased to 5.9. The authors did a number of interesting physiologic measurements. And without getting into all of the details, the really interesting thing that they found was that in the people who responded really well to the therapy of the very low-calorie diet, those patients were able to achieve improvements in their pancreatic beta cell function so that they started secreting insulin much more quickly in response to glucose, suggesting that there's real opportunities for patients to restore function to their pancreatic beta cells even after a very short but intensive lifestyle intervention. So to summarize, there's an emerging body of evidence that some interventions have been able to achieve remission in diabetes, but this is very preliminary. First of all, the interventions are often quite extreme, and it's unclear really how many people with diabetes would be able to adhere to such a severe caloric restriction or uh, would be able to undergo something like bariatric surgery. So the interventions are quite extreme. 
the patients that these have been tested in so far have been highly selected. So how generalizable this is to the overall population is not clear. And the long-term effects are still not as well known. I think it's important to separate bariatric surgery here from the lifestyle interventions because increasingly we're seeing stronger and stronger results from the bariatric surgery long-term follow-up studies. But all of this points to a shift in the understanding of diabetes as a disease. Diabetes is not necessarily a progressive disease that is associated with an inexorable decline in pancreatic beta cell function. There's some evidence to suggest that with radical interventions, sure, we are able to achieve restoration of pancreatic beta cell function and in some patients achieve remissions in diabetes. And it's certainly a very promising area for uh, future research to understand ways that we can actually try to halt the process of diabetes and in fact reverse the development of the disease. Okay, so that's it for topic number two. Finally, we come to our good stuff segment. My short and sweet observation from the world of medicine this week. So the thing that I stumbled across this week uh, is actually something that has crossed my path before, but I spent a bit more time with it uh, this week, and it's the story slam on being a doctor put together by the Annals of Internal Medicine. So Annals hosted an event where a number of physicians came to share stories about being a doctor in November of 2015, and then they put up the videos on their website. And there were three winning videos, and they talk about a range of experiences from a young intensive care physician talking about going through the death of a patient with the family of that patient and the surprising playlist that was chosen for the memorial for that patient to another physician who is a cancer physician talking about his experience when his wife developed lymphoma and then an internist talking about the early days of the AIDS epidemic in California. So a really fascinating set of short stories. They're all somewhere between five and eight minutes long. And it is well worth checking out. Okay, that's it for me from this week. We'll be back again next week with more content from the rounds table. Have a great week and talk to you again soon. The rounds table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.